The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey Rockheads, put down the Nintendo Wii controller and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 206 with guest Ted Neward. Recorded live, Tuesday, November 21st, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who was once told by a French waiter, No, you cannot put the cheese whiz on the foie gras. Carl Franklin! Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's Carl Franklin coming at you from... New London, Connecticut, on the east coast of the United States of America, halfway between Boston and New York City. It's time for .NET Rocks. Richard's here. Hi, Richard. Hey, man. How you doing? Doing fine, you Canadian you. I'm enjoying the wintertime. Christmas is coming. It's all good. We're uh, on our weekend hiatus between launch events. We're going to Ottawa this week. We're probably there right now as you're listening to this. Absolutely. Handing out t-shirts. Throwing t-shirts like madmen. <laughs> Getting accosted. Toronto was probably the most aggressive uh, Canadian city that we were accosted in. It was almost 4,000 people, too, so it was quite the zoo. They wanted their t-shirts. They were serious about them, and we only had about 400, so the odds were bad. Yeah. Hey, before we get going here, I want to once again remind the listeners that uh, the New York City tour is still available if you're a .NET developer looking for a change of pace, spend a year in New York City. You get your apartment free. You get uh, uh, some airfare back and forth between your homeland and the Big Apple. And uh, basically, uh, we're you know looking for good people down there. So send email to gbrill at infusiondev.com. That's G-B-R-I-L-L at infusiondev.com for more about that. Uh, hey, Richard. Yes, sir. You got some email? I got an email. Actually, I got quite a bit of email, and i sorry I can't read it all. I really appreciate the ideas you guys are setting. I had one email, must have had a dozen good show ideas. 
Yeah. Some I've thought of, some I hadn't, so exciting stuff. But I got one I really enjoyed. I thought I'd read it to you. Okay. Uh, it says, hi, guys. I just wanted to send you to a yay, keep it going from a Swedish architect. I know ah. you've got loads of emails like this from people around the world, but I thought, hey, why not give them another one, this time from a guy in Sweden. I work as a consultant, mostly doing .NET related stuff, and lately I've been commuting quite a bit to different customers, and the time I spend on the trains and buses seems to be shorter while listening to your shows. Mm -hmm. That alone is worth a couple of beers and a pizza if you ever happen to be in Stockholm for any reason. Swedish pizza. Swedish pizza. I'm wondering <laughs> what, what's going to be on that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm currently modding a process template in Team Foundation Server to fit our own development process. I'm interested in different development methodologies, patterns, etc. And I'm also an Xbox 360 fan. So the stuff you've been talking about and the people you've had on the shows lately are just spot on. Yeah. So keep it up. As a developer and architect who loves to create frameworks and stuff myself, I'm not particularly fond of third-party software. But I must say that now you've earned so much trust that I'm seriously considering buying components from some of the companies you've been mentioning. Well, isn't that cool? That's good. Jeez, is that a sign of getting old? I don't know. But I'm actually considering buying software components instead of, I can do that myself? <laughs> Let's say I'm getting wiser. Getting smart. That's it. Cheers, Johan Danforth. Johan, thank you for that email. We're going right. to uh, contact you soon and give you a choice of swag, uh, as we like to do. Absolutely. And I'm with you, man. Any software I don't have to write is stuff I don't have to take care of. So get those third-party components. And they're absolutely amazing. You know, that latest demo you showed me of the Telerik controls was stunning. So this is what Richard's talking about is in this week's, in last week's DNR TV. Actually, it's in last week's, um, which is me, actually, talking about sockets in VB.net. And yeah, I know, sockets, too hard. Why do that when you got all this other great stuff? I'm telling you, just go check it out. This week, I'm building and showing off an instant messaging server written all with sockets, all completely multi-threaded, handling multiple requests, and uh, the, 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 the client that you can use to, to implement that. And Mark Miller was a co-host on DNRTV at dnrtv.com. And uh, we, did a new, we have a new ad for Telerik, and they basically show you in two minutes how to take any ASP.NET application that does any kind of postback and without writing a single line of code, turn it into an AJAX-enabled asynchronous website. And I'm so glad you showed that to me because I wouldn't have believed you unless I'd seen it in action. It really it is amazing. amazing. Yeah. You just pick your controls from a list. You say... This is the one that initiates. This is the one that receives, uh, you know, that gets updated. Boom. That's it. It's amazing. Uh, so, Telerik, good stuff. And, you know, they've that company has just grown so much since we well, started. Well, nothing like building great stuff to have some success. Right. Hey, uh, what was the name of that product, Richard, that uh, was the, the PBX system that's Asterisk. open source and .NET? Asterisk. Yeah, it's not actually .NET. That's an open source one. Oh, it's primarily not running .NET. Linux. Oh, okay. But it's open source and it's a, a PBX system that runs. Does it run only on Linux or does it run on PC too? Well, there's different parts available. In fact, there are some .NET related extensions for it. And some of the listeners have been sending us information like that as I was trying to pull together exactly what we want to do for an asterisk show. Yeah, I was thinking we should actually get it and install it and try to see if it works and see what our experiences are with it. Well, and maybe I, we could just that's do what the I'm show thinking you, about. Just I want something me. like that for my home. 
maybe we could just do the show just you and me on it if uh, we have the good experience or or the bad experience for that for that matter. Well, I'd like to have an expert to yell at while I'm doing that. It's probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt, find someone else to blame. Absolutely. I'm just kidding, of course. And I have an email here, Richard, and this is pertinent to Ted uh, Neward, our guest. Uh, Ted, are you out there? I'm right here. All right. Well, you're going to have to listen to this, too. Oh, uh, it's always lovely when you hear what people are saying about you behind your back. Yeah, so well, I'm sure Normally you... they just do it in front of me, so maybe it'll be <laughs> different if it's behind the back. <laughs> this is from somebody you know, O.B. Oberoi. Oh, yes, 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 yes. He says, Dear Carl and Richard, thanks a ton for putting all these incredible shows back to back. I was extremely touched by one of your recent shows at Sofia, Bulgaria, where uh, a couple of your guest speakers stressed the importance of knowing multiple languages in order for a consultant to be marketable, i.e. someone with 10 years experience in one language is equivalent to the other with two years experience using more than one language. After listening to your show, it was like being hit by a bolt from the blue. By the way, I am a VB.net developer with 10 years development experience using Visual Basic. I decided from that day on I was going to make an effort to learn C-sharp every day. So much so that a project I started recently in VB.net, I decided to write the business layer entirely in C-sharp and have the UI originally written in VB.net reference the C-sharp assembly. I assert that the amount of fun and satisfaction I'm having in developing this web application in VBNet and C-Sharp all under one solution is far greater than winning a jackpot. I thank DNR for being such an eye-opener for me. I must admit that I was somewhat biased towards VBNet all these years. And what's funny is, immediately after that, Richard, he uses a semicolon. <laughs> Which is grammatically correct. Grammatically correct. But it's a terrible pun. I must admit that I was somewhat biased toward VBNet all these years. Semicolon. However, if you come to think of it, essentially... Boy, that's pretty surreal, wouldn't you think of that? <laughs> However... Well, see, now the now the thing is, all these VB developers who like you know take up writing articles and so forth, they're going to try to end their sentences with you know apostrophe marks instead of semicolons or something. And everyone's going to be like, "What the f- with all these quotes?" Right? Back. Uh, you guys are just weird. However, if you come to think of it, essentially, I see VB.net and C Sharp, the children of Visual Studio.net, with the same blood group, i.e., Ildasm. If you have adopted one, how can you afford to neglect the other? With that, I thank you once again for being a tremendous source of inspiration. And lastly, I attribute all my current and future success to Mark Miller. No, no, that <laughs> doesn't say that. It says to you guys. Uh, you know, Obi, somewhere along the line, you did some work, too. So if we gave you some good ideas, that fine. But your success is your own. And also, you know, we're, we're just the messengers, the real experts are the people we interview. Absolutely. We can't and forget that. the guest speaker he referenced, I do believe, was Ted Neward. Yes, it was. Oh, gosh. Now you're making me blush. Although, I mean, I think he paraphrased your quote a little bit. Didn't you say something along the lines of a guy with 10 years experience in one language is no more valuable than a guy with two years experience in one language? I think so. I think so. It was probably something along those lines because... Yeah, you know, this has come up any number of times where, you know, you, you walk into a shop and you see these guys, you know, with 10, 15, 20 years experience. And not to knock any of those guys individually, but at a certain point, it seems when you talk to them, 
you know, they've been sitting in the same job for 10 years. They just kind of stopped learning. Yeah, and, I can't yeah, imagine you know, doing the same thing for 10 years. I have a tough time doing the same thing for a week. Yeah, yep. exactly, exactly. And, and you know, fortunately, we now, modern modern medicine knows how to recognize ADD in adults, and there's prescriptions that you can get, Richard. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've learned to harness my emotional and psychological quirks for the powers of good. So, I, mean, I, I just found a working environment where I can be ADD and successful at the same time. Yes. Now, and, and, you know, having harnessed your psychological powers for good, talk backwards now, you must. And <laughs> teach the twins, you must. You shall. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, just, just one of the things that, that, that I've, I've noticed, you know, in many ways is that um, many of these languages, you know, you can really learn, you can really become a journeyman, if not a master, with the language within a year to two year span of time. I mean, if you really focus on this. And as you learn more languages, you quickly discover that many of these languages build on top of other languages. So it actually, you know, the, the second language you learn, is, yeah. is it seems difficult, right? The VB guy going to C-sharp, the C-sharp guy going to VB, you know, that transition may seem difficult. You know, then once you do that, you know, then you, you reach over to Java and say, oh, okay, this is all basically same stuff, different syntax. And then you start reaching out. Then you start reaching to, like, you know, JavaScript, and then you start reaching to, you know, Smalltalk or Ruby. And the more you do this, the more you really realize that these languages, there's a tremendous amount of, of leveraging that goes on here, right? Mm. People get upset at Microsoft with, with leveraging other people's technology. Microsoft has nothing on language designers. Right? Oh, for but sure. Then, this is actually a point of pride. Well, yes, you, we you build on the backs of giants, right? Yeah. Well, we stole liberally from Smalltalk, from Haskell, from Erlang. I mean, you see this usually in the opening paragraphs of any new intro to a language, right. just to be able to put it in a certain context for people. You know, so although it may seem really intimidating to people out there, you know, those VB guys, you know, trying to decide whether or not to actually take up Obi's cause and, 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 you know, learn a new language or, you know, um, take up uh, uh, the, you know, the challenge within the book, The Pragmatic Programmer, that suggests you should learn a new language every year. Um, you know, this is actually much easier to do once it's done. There's a curious phenomenon, actually, in, in spoken language, where about the third or fourth language you learn, you know, so you learn your native tongue, you learn a second tongue, the the languages you start to learn after that, actually mastery comes much, much more quickly. It's almost like once you break down the paths of resistance in your mind to learning your language, suddenly you can just start absorbing them. You know, you don't see very many people who know three or four languages. They either know one or two, or else they know five or more. It's very yeah. weird. It's very strange. And I think it's very true in programming languages. There's so many common constructs that once you've gotten over that hurdle a couple of times, they come pretty easily after that. Yeah. And I think well, it's especially it's, important in the Microsoft space. So many people back into programming. You know, they were the guy standing closest to the server when the last guy quit. And now they mm -hmm. you know, they sort of got saddled with the job or they came from another career and were getting bored with it. And they got out of control with macro programming and went into VBA. And the next thing right. you know, they were programmers. But when they finally right. made that jump to a totally new language, and I think it's the big one of here was the VBA to .NET, is when they made the commitment to be a professional programmer. Yeah, yeah. 
I actually have a buddy of mine that I speak with on the uh, NFJS tour, the Java tour uh, that that goes cross continent, and um, you know he actually came into came into programming exactly that way. He did Excel, VBA, macros, and such, and from there got into I think it was Access, and from there got into Visual Basic, and from there you know made the leap over to Java, and you know. Dude's now a speaker and an author and an independent consultant. And, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whenever it was that he got started, he clearly wasn't any of these things. So, you know, if to the listeners who are out there, you know, if to you programming is this deep, dark, mysterious, arcane thing, there are people who have trod that path before you and, you know, in many cases found that actually to be a, a fairly easy and, and straightforward transition. Well, Ted, you didn't come here to speak about multiple languages and the importance of learning them all. I know uh, there are other. Th- well, you got you other know, fish kind of like to Pokemon, fry, Pokemon, right? You got to learn them all. That's right, <laughs> Pokemon. Jeez, but you know the multiple language thing definitely is your forte. Not to reference any other friends of ours, but uh, <laughs> uh, interoperability is you, you know yeah. the, the yeah your uh, your nom de plume, so to speak. Yeah, and and you know it's interesting. Um, within the last uh, probably six months, all of a sudden, you know, before I, I kind of felt like you know the, the the lone prophet in the wilderness, you know, wearing sackcloth and ashes and, and preaching to you know the locusts. Um, all and generally sudden, having things hurled at you too. I've read some of those comments in your right. blog. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's. There's a lot of there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of personal concern that gets wrapped up in some of these interoperability discussions because a lot of developers are you know they've lived through the you know oh well you know our CTO just got taken out to a nice dinner and after dinner entertainment and and you know since this is a mostly PG related show we won't discuss the after dinner entertainment <laughs> but and that was sufficient to convince you know, said CTO that, you know, oh, tomorrow we're a .NET shop or tomorrow we're a Java shop. And a lot of these developers, you know, are really, they, they, they get scared. It's like, crap, what does that mean for me and my job? I mean, we're still not, we're still not back in that economic era where, you know, I can just jump up on Monster and, and you know, get a job within, you know, within a day or within a week or something like that. What do I do now? My job is at stake. So they, they take that, you know, to, to suggest that .NET is just as good as Java or Java is just as good as .NET or that Ruby is just as good as either of these two platforms, you know, ooh, that, that hits really close to home. And so these guys get very, very sensitive about those kinds of assertions. Right. You know, I, I understand where it's coming from, so I can I can live with it. You know, I mean, there's there's a certain lunatic fringe out there who truly just believe in the you know, I think Microsoft is evil and, 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 you know, Bill Gates is the spawn of the devil and, you know, and all software should be free and so forth. And those guys, you know, uh, well, I mean, if they manage to, to get past, you know, the, the bodyguards at the door, that's fine. I'm not going to get, you know, I'm not going to get really upset about it. They're entitled to their opinion, and I certainly wish them well. You know, I don't particularly subscribe to that worldview, you know, but there's always going to be that, that you know, that element that completely disagrees with you and yet shows up to your talks anyway. <laughs> you know, as long as their check clears with the conference, I still get paid whether they agree with me or not. So, right. you know, that, that's fine. Um, but within the last six months, interestingly enough, the, you know, the, the, 
the first the first wave has really started to grow, right? We're starting to see a lot of of you know movement in the interop direction, and not just the WS discussion, you know, the web services, you know, kitchen sink specifications discussion, but really people focused on you know trying to make you know interoperability real, you know, not just this theoretical thing, but you know, I think a lot of developers are waking up in the morning and realizing, holy crap, I've got at least two platforms that I have to make work well together. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, just this morning was doing a, uh, a, a conference call slash live meeting uh, that Microsoft had sponsored for some folks out in the Colorado area about this interoperability issue. And one of the things I mentioned there, which I'll mention here again, is uh, what I'm seeing now, part of the reason why interoperability is becoming more important is we're starting to see some interesting divergence in the platforms, right? You in, know, originally, in .NET and Java, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Originally, in, in, you know, when .NET first came out, to a lot of people with Java background, this was basically you know, Java V2. You know, it, was, yeah. it was literally the son of Java. It was almost the clone of Java. Um, you know, the CLR and the JVM, you know, they were far more similar than they were different. Um, the C-sharp language, of course, you know, a lot of people very quickly pointed out, hey, this is of the C family of languages, and since Java is also of the C family of languages, clearly Microsoft is attempting to steal Java or break Java or whatever. Right. You know, but, but I mean, this was clearly, you know, hey, these two are, are clones of one another, mirror images and so forth. Now you're really starting to see Microsoft chart its own path, starting to say, look, the Java guys are choosing to go down this path of, you know, ESBs and and um, uh, other related tools, JVI and so forth. We are choosing to go down a different path. We're choosing to go down a path that's a little bit more, you know, developer-centric. We're not pushing the same kinds of things that the Java space is. We're choosing to invest in things like, you know, WPF and workflow and so forth. We're not choosing to reinvent the application server to create the app server, you know, the, the same app server that we see numerous times over here in the Java space. We're not trying to recreate servlets and JSP and the various web frameworks. You're really starting to see Microsoft trying to, you know, create its own, its own image, if you will, in the managed code space. And for that reason, because now it's not just mere images of one another, all of a sudden, people are going, oh, wow, I like the notion of workflow, but I need it to talk to my J2E ERP backend system. How do I make that happen? And so a lot of people are really starting to wake up and say, hey, you know, I, I've got, I'm actually staring that, that Gartner prediction in the face. I'm so, one of those 90%. So how do you make that happen, Ted? Well, I mean, if it were an easy answer, then, you know, it wouldn't be interesting to talk about, right? Isn't it? Isn't uh, the easy answer here web services? Isn't this what web services was for? Well, that all depends, Richard. Do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to step in it here. That's all I'm hoping for. Yeah, we're just trying to, we're just <laughs> trying to say, stir the pot. That's a tripwire if ever I saw one, right? Hey, it, the the short answer is that's what the web services community tried to do. I mean, they really tried to to provide that kind of seamless, ubiquitous, uh, open-ended interoperability. But unfortunately, there's a large number of issues that stand in the way. Number one being they chose XML as their expressive format, as their portable data format. I mean, 
you know, the fact that they chose XML, I guess, is kind of a misnomer. Everybody jumped on the XML bandwagon, so it was really a question of how do we use XML to make things, you know, how do we use that 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 portable data format that everybody seems to love, how do we use that to create interoperability? But the problem with, you know, the notion of XML here is simply the fact that XML is a hierarchical data format, and not everything we deal with is hierarchical, right? Um, you know, one of the, the, the examples I love to use is the notion of a relatively simple person object, POJO, the plain old Java object, yeah. as we call it in the Java space. XML doesn't have to be, you know, hierarchical. You can just have a series of flat records. Well, the problem you when you do that, Carl, is you lose all of the XML mess, right? I mean, if you look at, if you look at the original SOAP document, Section 5 of the original SOAP 1.1 document, described a way to take objects and serialize them into XML in such a way that we could have object references, right? So you can have a person who has a field spouse of type person, right? Um, so we can have, you know, person instance Richard, Richard.spouse equals Stacy, Stacy.spouse equals Richard. Now the question becomes when we try to pass those guys across the wire, that doesn't nest hierarchically cleanly. So what do we do? The, the short answer is, SOAP said, we'll just do a reference-based thing, right? So we'll see angle bracket person, ID equals one, angle bracket um, name Richard, angle bracket spouse, href equals two, right? And then close off spouse, close off person, and then create another person, ID two, name Stacy, spouse, href equals one. Problem here is all of your XML tools break down, right? And so now you can't do things like XSLT, XQuery, XPath. None of them can get at the name of the spouse of the person named Richard. So basically what you're saying is if, on the Java side anyway, if you're trying to expose flat uh, data structures via web services, you fundamentally have, uh, you're asking for trouble. Well, this isn't a Java problem, Carl. This is a, this is a object problem. Right. So I, yeah, I guess take... I guess my original question then was, what uh, you know the problems that Microsoft chose XML because it was hierarchical and not everybody plays that way. Well, see the thing is, you know, the notion that Microsoft chose XML is again something of a misnomer, right? Microsoft realized, as everybody else did, that that XML is something that everybody seems to be jumping behind, right? So they said, well, how do we use that to create interoperable solutions, right? Um, you know, in in many respects, part of the reason why XML seems like such a great and easy choice is because frequently when we build object models, they're intrinsically hierarchical, right? Yeah. We think of purchase orders having one-to-many line items, line items having a SKU and a price and a quantity and so forth. That seems intrinsically hierarchical. But if you take one of these, you know, straight-up objects, right. right, I see. And in the .NET space, feed it to the XML serializer. Right. If you take that person construct, that Richard Stacy graph of object, if you take that and feed it to XML serializer, you will quickly discover how deep your stack can go before mm. you blow up. Yeah. Because they'll just recur. <laughs> and, and that's I the truth, it. right? Is the you'll find out that's an issue when it dies. Exactly. Exactly. So then exactly. to so then to further clarify your point and and say what I probably should have said before, not just Java, but Anybody who's trying to communicate and expo, expo, uh, expose 
you know, flat object hierarchies or flat data constructs through web services is ultimately doomed. Well, they're, they're going to run into a world of hurt. Right? Yeah. And this is why you look at all those, those web services demos, you know, the, the ones that Microsoft loves to use on the floor of TechEd or, yeah. or Sun or Oracle or, you know, equally guilty of using on the floor of Java 1. All of those demos, what do they sling around, right? They sling around strings and ints. Yeah. Because those are the easiest things in the world to make interoperable. And when you start, it's when you start getting into, you know, trying to expose your object model across the wire, that stuff really, really starts to break down. And, you know, this is what has led to, you know, we're basically in the middle of it right now. There's a backlash going on against web services as a whole uh, because of this, because the vendors really, really sold hard this promise that said web services will solve all your interoperability issues. And and the vendors are now reaping the whirlwind in the sense that they sold that story without realizing that XML, right, that, that there's there's every bit as much of an impedance mismatch Ted, between objects and XML as there is between objects and relational data. Ted, is it yeah. naive to think that this problem can be solved simply by making another layer around the uh, web services? That uh, What I mean by that is, so you can't take your objects and shove them down the XML wire. Maybe the uh, you know maybe we need to to treat this as what it is, which is a communication layer, right. you know, rather right. than right. So so in other words, pull back a little bit and try to uh, make more efficient and more appropriate the messages that you're sending across, and maybe right. they have to well, be in different formats than than your application is using. There's there's two basic approaches to this, Carl. Right? One okay. is, like you said, pull back, right, and look at web services or what I'm going to call XML services because we're also discovering that HTTP is not the only transport we ever care about, right. which is a whole other rant in of itself. But, yeah, I'm with you there. You, know, you, <laughs> you pull back and you say, look, XML services are about sending messages, not making method calls, right? right? Um, that's one approach. But realistically, again, you know, we go back to one of the things that was sort of the driving, um, driving forces behind, you know, web services, XML services, was open-ended interoperability, right? If you are a Fortune 500 company, open-ended interoperability is important to you because you likely have not only Java and .NET, but you've got some Perl code, some Python code, some legacy C++ code. You're probably going to get some Ruby code. You're probably going to get some more code in whatever language happens to be the big thing after Ruby, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. You live in a, in a very, very heterogeneous environment, and so you clearly need that kind of open-ended interoperability. And that's who the, the XML services guys are clearly, clearly targeting. Now, the flip side, you're a Fortune 5,000 company or a Fortune 50,000 company if such things exist, right? I don't think we track these guys, but you know yeah. what I mean, right? You're the medium-sized firm right. who's trying to talk to somebody else who's, you know, your Java, their .NET, or vice versa. Or you're a company that's got two departments that need to get these two platforms and only these two platforms to talk to one another. Now a whole new world of, of opportunity opens up to you in that there's a whole raft of tools, uh, commercial and open source, that can address that, right? Um, you know, Specifically source, targeting pairs of environments or pairs of, uh, of uh, libraries? 
Well, specifically in this case, targeting this pair, Java and .NET. Right. Right. Um, you know, it, it turns out that that pairing represents about 90% of the business development market. And I know the Ruby guys are going to go ballistic when they hear me say that. Um, <laughs> my apologies to Dave Thomas and Stu Alloway and Justin Gatlin and, and particularly Bruce Tate, who are now going out and making a living on selling Ruby. But you know, clearly that's still the bleeding edge, right? Yeah, I think um, Neil Ford, a, another NFJS buddy of mine, is saying at ThoughtWorks, you know, you ask him on a week-to-week basis, hey, Neil, um, you know, how many, how much .NET work are you doing? How much Java work you're doing? And that number typically adds up to about, you know, 98%, right? The one right. consistent thing seems to be that the amount of Ruby work they're doing is like around 2%. Not a lot um, of legacy Ruby apps out there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Despite the fact that Ruby actually is older than either Java or .NET. True, yeah. Right. Mott's released Ruby before Java uh, was released to the world at that 1995 Java 1. Um, be that as it may, right, Ruby certainly has not had the kind of enterprise-wide following that Java or .NET has received. But, you know, if, if you're in a situation where you need to, you know, get Ruby into your system, okay, now you're starting to get into the open-ended space. But right now, you know, there's not enough Java Ruby interest or Ruby.net interest to really merit somebody going off and trying to create, you know, or trying to build a whole ecosystem around uh, pairings of Ruby with something else. Although, interestingly enough, I have to give a shout out to a uh, ex-developmenter buddy of mine, uh, John Lamb, who just recently joined drank the, the Dynamic Languages team. At, what's that? He drank the Kool-Aid. Yeah, He's got his bar over the dark yeah. side. Yes, he did. Well, John had always had, had has drunk the Ruby Kool-Aid for many, many months now, right? So he's clearly been drinking of the red Kool-Aid. Now right. what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to bring some of that Kool-Aid into the CLR. And if you don't know what we're talking about, John Lamb has written a CLR to Ruby bridge. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So basically allowing you to host the Ruby runtime inside the CLR and bridge to it in process, which segueing in is exactly the same thing that IKVM does for .NET. IKVM lets you basically, well, I shouldn't say that. It's not exactly the same thing. What IKVM does... Let's define IKVM. IKVM is an open source project. I have no idea what the letters stand for. Uh, Jorgen is probably going to get upset with me because it's probably mentioned somewhere in the docs, and (laughs) I have no idea. That's okay. But... I think it's intended. I think it's intended as a pun on JVM, since I and K are the letters right around J. Ah, uh. but I'm not positive. Um, <laughs> it's you know, clever. If not, I just started a nasty rumor, and we'll we'll see how far that meme goes. <laughs> you know, .NET Rocks would not even be possible today if it weren't for the great support of our first sponsor, Data Dynamics, and their product is the one that we really love: Active Reports for .NET. It's easy to use. It's powerful. You just create the reports. You put them right in your assemblies, and you ship them with your code. They have uh, HTML and PDF support. They've got an excellent access upsizing wizard so that you can get your access reports into Active Reports for .NET. Uh, works for Windows Forms. Works with ASP.NET. It's easy, and it just works. And best of all, it won't break the bank. And that's what we love about Data Dynamics. Data Dynamics has got a lot of other great tools, too. And you should check them out. Please check them out at datadynamics.com.
Com. But basically, the idea of IKVM is it's a bytecode translator. It's a one-way bytecode translator. It allows the it, it basically takes JVM bytecode and turns it into CIL, the bytecode for the CLR. And he does this in two fashions. One is a compiler, if you will. I guess it's more of a translator, but throw a jar file at IKVMC, and it'll turn it into a .NET assembly. The other is to do this at runtime. So you can actually create an instance of IKVM, pass it a Java class uh, on the command line somewhere, on the class path, as we call it, in the Java space. And it'll dynamically load said class and then flip the bytecode and execute it under the auspices of the CLR, right? So I can actually load... He's actually loaded Eclipse under IKVM. Now, performance is not something that you, you know, you would really, really want to do this, but it can be done. Um, That was sort of a a bottleneck, a, a watershed moment for him when he was actually able to bring Eclipse up under IKVM. It was like, yes. I have arrived. I am now done. Something works. Um, Something big. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Something non-trivial. This is not hello world kind of thing. And what this can, what this means then is, you know, say for example, um, you know, I've got a whole bunch of business logic living in spring inside of, of, of a Java uh, environment that I want to invoke from some kind of rich client platform. It means now that I can take the, Spring client jar code, whatever that is, be it over JMS, be it over RMI, whatever, I can bring all that code over and literally turn it into .NET assemblies and invoke it from inside of a Word doc or from inside of an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. Right. One of the things I'm working on right now um, is creating a demo for the InfoQ folks. People who are interested in this subject, by the way, InfoQ is actually hosting a portal in conjunction with Microsoft and a couple other folks. Uh, up on www.infoq.com slash J plus N, um, they're actually going to host a whole bunch of, of different folks, myself and some other folks, Michelle Bustamante, uh, Ian Griffith, uh, some folks from the Java space, to talk more about you know Java.net interoperability in, in practical and pragmatic terms. Um, I'm actually working on a demo for them that people can download and run that, that actually uses an Excel spreadsheet client to talk to the spring implementation of the pet store. So you can use cool. Excel as your front end, your rich client front end to talk to a J2E or in this case, a spring backend. It's interesting, Ted, what you're doing. Uh, you, you know, every, it seems like we just talked to you a month ago, but of course it was probably six or seven months ago. And every Actually, time, I think it was a year and a half ago. Was it really? Oh my the, god! The, yeah. the show uh, when you talked about spring was yeah, two thousand four. Wow, it was before yeah. my time. Yeah, has it the really? We haven't talked to you. Bef- we haven't talked to you since Richard's been the host, co-host. Yes. Well, unless you count Devreach, but no. Wow, I must yeah, be losing it. When you're having fun. You know, it must be like William Shatner when people come up to me all the time and they say, hey, you know, in that show and blah, 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 and you said this. I'm like, I can't remember. Sorry, we've done 200 of these. But what I was going to say was, you know, it seems like every time we talk, you have some new angle on interop that 
you know, you're always thinking about things that other people don't seem to be thinking about. Well, it's such a rich space. I mean, you know, this is, I guess in many respects, to me, this is where the hard problems lie, right? Absolutely. Interoperability has been the, it is the albatross around our neck as, as an industry, right? It is, it is the, the weight, right? I'm mixing my metaphors there. It's the, it's the, the millstone around our neck. It's the albatross. It's the, you know, the thing that really holds us back within the industry. And it's not like this problem has been solved before in a one size fits all fashion. You know, I mean, we've had this problem of interoperability ever since ever since the second computer came online. So you must have had some thoughts along the way that are sort of bigger than what you see going on, what you see happening, like in a perfect world. You know, how uh, is there a better way to solve this problem than we're currently going at it? Well, probably the biggest thing is not to not to buy into the notion of a single a single size solution, right? I mean, you know, the the web services community, um, the the web services vendors in particular, and I hate to say it, but Microsoft is just as guilty as the other vendors here. Um, they they were they were guilty of promising that that this was going to solve all your interoperability issues for all time, and you know it it can do that, but only if you're willing to you know meet it halfway. Only if you're willing to, like we talked about earlier, create messages and so forth. Uh, I can solve all your interoperability problems if you all program in the same language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. If you just do this thousand year plan, those kinds of solutions are not really solutions. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really starts to take on a whole new dimension when you start really exploring all of those options. And that's part of what, you know, that's part of what I try to do is I try to say, look, there are lots of different ways to make these two platforms work together. Ian Griffiths actually turned me on to a new idea, which is to say, you know, that WPF, right, you can actually dynamically uh, browse, if you will, XAML, right? Yeah. You, I, I, I know you guys have talked about that in the past. Yeah. Well, again, right, the XAML just comes from any arbitrary URL. Who's to say that that URL isn't a servlet or JSP page producing the XAML, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we've got all these frameworks out there in the Java space for producing HTML. It's not a hard trick nope. to flip them over to producing XAML. So now, all of a sudden, you've got the richness of WPF plugged into your traditional Java stack. Right, web work and Spring and Velocity and all these other web frameworks now basically can become XAML frameworks, right? And that just—I mean, it's interesting when I do that that demo in presentations, people's eyes just go boink. Yeah, right. You can you yeah. can see the lights come on, right? And it's like holy crap! You know, I can do all of the the backend J two stuff. You know, the Hibernates, the JDO, the EGB, whatever, and yet it's still dot net front end. Ted, that brings me to the question, have the Java people figured out that their Windows UI sucks? <laughs> um, you know, Carl, that's have one this, of those... Have they accepted this fact? Java guy, if you were a Java guy, Carl, I would be forced now to invoke the, uh, the, the, the secret clause of the Java Brotherhood, <laughs> which says that you must be kidnapped by men in, in black, <laughs> uh, tight-fitting underwear, and, and hustled into a van off the city streets. So you're saying um, it doesn't suck? No, I'm not saying it doesn't suck. I'm saying that there are a lot of... I mean, 
you know, there's, there's, there's two answers to that question. Number one, the Swing Library is a rich and very, very powerful tool and has a tremendous amount of power and promise that if you fit within the, the target audience that Swing was attempting to focus on, which is to say, I need to write a, a UI that works across platforms and still offers most of the major capabilities, yeah. Swing is perfect for you. Swing is gorgeous for what you want to do. The problem is that the number of people who fit that definition is actually statistically smaller than the swing guys thought there would be. Yeah. And realistically speaking, um, the swing UI builders just never emerged. Yep. I mean, they just really never emerged. So imagine for a moment, Carl, having to write all your WinForms code line by line. Uh, yeah. It's called C. You know, you would think that UIs suck then, too. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not because of the toolkit. <laughs> It's because of all that code you have to write line by line. And also, um, you know, if you think about Swing, it, it's really, you know, what it, what does it produce? It produces something that looks like a VB5 app or a VB6 app, right? I mean, well, is it, it no. can't really take advantage of, or can it? Can it take advantage of graphics processors to do cool stuff on multiple platforms? Well, here's the thing, right? Um, you're right in the sense that Swing... Swing handles all of its own painting logic, right? Right. So the fact that it might look like, I mean, one of the things Swing can do is we have these different things called look and feels, right? So we can actually make your Swing app look like a Motif app, a Windows app, a Mac OS app. Yeah, at the uh, cost in, of, its own look and feel. At the cost of metal. performance, because it's because it's doing painfully slow writes. Well. And they're working to improve that with every successive release, right? I have to, I have to throw that caveat in there that the Swing team, with every successive release, is working to make that go faster, right? Now, the fact of the matter is, um, there's a competing framework in the Java space. You, you know, it, the Java space is all about n number of frameworks, where n is greater than two for any particular subject. Um, <laughs> and the competing framework here is SWT the standard widget toolkit, which is actually what Eclipse is written in, which is why a lot of people, you know, find that Eclipse has much, much better usability than, say, IDEA, which is actually my personal framework of choice, which is written in Swing. Eclipse is much snappier in many scenarios because SWT does the same thing that WinForms does. It actually uses native widgets rather than trying to paint everything itself. Right. Right. So if you want to build a Java UI that doesn't suck, Step one, you really want to consider using SWT because it actually hooks into the native platform, right? Yeah. And it turns out that SWT is available for pretty much all of the platforms that we care about, right? Okay. Mac, Linux, and Windows. And beyond that, who really cares, realistically speaking? What, what prompted me to ask that question, however flip it might have been, um, was that, you know, you, you're showing people now using XAML, a, a Java server that can output XAML and paint the UI just like a browser would paint the UI. Right, right. And talking to, you know, with services back to the Java, uh, back to the big, you know, the back end. What, why, you know, if somebody's like using Java, aren't they going to be, uh, I mean, are they really looking for, Windows specific UI, like you know, such as XAML is, is the well, it, it, is XAML going to XAML going to cross other platforms? That's another question that's relevant to that story. XAML will, I mean, the the WPF team 
Uh, and I'm certainly not a WPF expert, right? Uh, Ian Griffiths, who I mentioned earlier, is is the XAML expert of choice for me. So, mm. you know, WPF questions, I usually go to him on, on those. Uh, and there is, uh, Ian was mentioning this, well, he and I were at uh, at a speaker dinner in, in Denmark not too long ago for the uh, JAU conference, which is a great conference, by the way. Um, he was mentioning that Microsoft is doing a WPFE, I think it is, which is supposed to be like WPF everywhere, WPF anywhere, WPF Express, or mm. something along those lines, right? You, you, you know, whatever those names. So non-Windows specific kind of stuff? Right. It's going to be a subset of WPF for other platforms. Now, details, I have none. So, you know, this is this is where we turn to God or Google or whatever particular deity you believe in. Yeah, and, I... um, and, and you know, I, I think Microsoft would like to bring some of the WPF uh, experience to other platforms. But, yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, WPF is and always will be fundamentally a Windows-centric technology. And I always come and, back to the, to the people who are implementing Java, and well, are they are they the going to do care that, about, Carl? Right? They're not the ones we care about, right? For too many years, developers have been making decisions based on what developers think the right answer should be. Mm. And quite frankly, uh, this growing interest in agile movement and agile methodologies yeah. has brought us back to the fundamental realization, which is, you know, at the end of the day, the customer is king, yeah. right? And there are a lot of customers out there who are really, really tired of HTML-based interface. Yeah. That's why Ajax is so popular. Right. That's why WPF is getting as much traction as it is, mm. even outside of the Windows space. There are a number of people in the non-Microsoft technology world who are looking at WPF and saying, bah, that's just like, you know, insert some other technology here. Zool or or um, uh, X forms or whatever, but the truth of it is, realistically, it's really not just like those other things. It looks like it because you use XAML or XML to express your object model, but it's really fundamentally different. It's not about creating a cross-platform solution. It's about exploiting the underlying platform. So, do and you think again, it's real? Do you think it's realistic, Ted, that we'll see in the future, uh, sort of XAML being the uh, the client application UI descriptive language of choice, and that actually will will uh, will start seeing that on other platforms. Well, I think it's going to be the same thing that Microsoft did, for example, to Visual Basic. Right? VB6 is still there. How much VB6 code do you write? GDI is still there. How much GDI code will you write in five years? I really, really believe. I mean, I think you know to quote Don Box. Uh, and to sort of paraphrase them with respect to COM, you know, I think GDI is done. It's finished. There's nothing more that needs to be done, right? There's there's no more bugs that need to be fixed, right? Anything that you might consider a bug, it's a feature. It was designed that way. Right. Microsoft wants to move on, right? They want to exploit. I mean, there's all these graphics processors. Um, you know, there's actually the various graphics card companies now uh, one of the uh, NFGS speakers sent me a link. They're actually exposing an SDK for being able to program the graphics processor from C, so you can use it for more than just graphics. Because, you know, that's a fat processor sitting in your box that's basically going idle 95% of the time. You know, WPF's going to leverage all of that and, and, you know, offload 
work off of the CPU. Uh, I, you know, how is this bad? How do we lose here? I don't, I don't see. And there's a side, where... there's a side benefit is that it can keep uh, the dens of millions of uh, people around the world warm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, like, yeah, and you're right. They, I mean, the whole issue about we're we're still about to find <laughs> out that GPUs are are hot, uh, freaking hot. I mean, we, oh my god, hot. Yeah, yeah the cycles oh, yeah. haven't been put into it. That's been put into the CPU to get the temperature down. Right, but we will. I mean, and again, this is one of those cases. You know, there's a great quote that that you know I keep hearing every so often. You know, what 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 uh, Andy giveth, Bill taketh away. Right. Yeah, <laughs> all the cycles that Andy Grove creates, Bill Gates seeks to to consume. I mean, the same thing is going to be true of the GPUs, right? And with this greater emphasis on you know multi-core CPUs and making use of the GPU, and believe me, I think we're only a year or two away from a multi-core video card. Just wait, yeah, it's going to come, right? There's going to be some guy out there who's who's going to want to get you know 250. Uh, frames per second out of Quake, and he's going to pay the five thousand dollars for, you know, a two-way or four-way, you know, NVIDIA card or something. Yeah, like though these that. products are already shipping. NVIDIA is making a four-way video card that's actually oh a God. separate chassis that's external to your machine. Richard, doesn't that come oh. with a nitrogen tank? Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but it does come with a cooling tower. Jeez. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the world we're going to live in, right? These, these. All these CPUs, all these processing units, whether they're C or G, all these processing units lying there whose, you know, potential lies as yet untapped. And, you know, we're going to look for ways to exploit that. And the beautiful thing is, you know, the CLR and the JVM both are in a position where they can do that. I mean, it's not going to be too long before somebody has the bright idea of bringing these managed environments over to the GPUs so they're easier to program. Yeah. Right, so we don't have to do it in C. Well, it's an and, interesting point that there's a whole layer of abstraction happening here because we're not sure which way this is going to go. Right. You know, more and more processors are going into the box. Why do we need GPUs? Why not just let one of the multiprocessors do that as well? And Ted, aren't we really talking, when we talk about interop, there, it, is there less concern about the client than the server? Because aren't most clients, the lion's share of clients, Windows anyway? Yeah, most of them are Windows, and, you know, there is currently, uh, certainly amongst geeks, there's a growing trend towards, you know, the Mac OS X box, um, because, you know, now that OS X, you know, runs a real operating system under the hood, in that it's a BSD derivative, you know, it's got a lot of really interesting eye candy goodness, and, you know, there's been obviously a lot of thought by the Apple engineers into to how those things work. Despite this, you know, this growing interest in the Mac OS, I don't think it's crested double digits yet in terms of percentage client share. So, you know, they've still got a long way to go in terms of winning over the industry. But even if, I mean, let's, let's assume Steve Jobs' greatest wet dream comes true and Mac gets 50%, that's 5-0% yeah. the client market share, you know, all that means is that we're going to want to take advantage of Apple's, you know, native uh, native graphics routines just as much as we want to take, a, take advantage of Windows native graphics routines. And, you know, we'll write a second presentation layer that exploits the Mac to its fullest degree. You're right. The fact is, you know, conservatively, 85% of all the desktops out there are Windows. And, yeah, 
people want to to see that $350 video card that they just dropped into the box doing something more than just playing Battlefield 2. So right? the, so you know to to get to the point the real the real interop issues are on the server where people you know well that's currently where they start but you know certainly interop issues they can appear on the client. I mean, you know, you're seeing a lot of that now in terms of client mashups, right? And and bear in mind here, by client, right, we have to be more precise with our terminology. We we should be talking about the presentation layer, right? That layer of abstraction that we right. use to write the UI-facing code. That includes ASP.NET. That includes ASP.NET AJAX, what used to be codenamed Atlas. That includes all of the various... Uh, Java-friendly toolkits that includes Rails, right? That includes all of the Java, you know, Spring MVC and Struts and so on and so forth. These, you know, people are going to want these technologies also to be able to work together so that we can start aggregating web applications together, right? Forget WPF entirely. We want to start aggregating web apps. I want to be able to get, you know, WPF to be admitted from my J2 backend as well as from my ASP.NET backend as well as potentially from my Ruby backend. There's no reason why that couldn't work as well. So, you know, we have to be careful here. On the client tier, yeah, it's a Windows box. That doesn't necessarily mean that the presentation code was written in a Microsoft language, right? This is the degree of subtlety that we're facing right now in the interop world that, you know, the code, the, the, the WPF, XAML that was emitted could very well have been emitted by Java. Yeah. It does I mean, strike starts, me that sooner or later somebody's going to make XAML part, XAML's going to become bidirectional in all platforms. They'll generate it and it's readable by the other platform and vice versa. Yeah, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, Microsoft gets twitchy when people start talking about taking WPF, WCF, or workflow and replicating that experience on other platforms. There was a uh, there was a, a movement at one point to create a Java equivalent of WCF, and a guy at Microsoft, uh, who shall remain nameless because he told me this in confidence, says, if they get anywhere, we are suing their ass because that's something Microsoft considers proprietary and advantageous. Which is interesting um, because it's part of the framework, and they've always given the framework away. Well, but we have to be really careful here, right? The framework itself is an implementation of the CLI standard, of the ECMA standard, right? But if you read the current ECMA standard, the ECMA standard, the, the common language infrastructure, is this, what basically shipped with, with .NET 2.0. NetFX or .NET 3.0, the bits that were added, were not part of the ECMA standard. That is a Microsoft proprietary extension to the standard. Well, we're really talking with Interop. Um, the thing that's most important there is WCF. And isn't Indigo supposed to be this uh, this open thing that other people can extend and implement? I no. Thought, see, now, no, that's see, not what I heard from Yuval Lowy. <laughs> well, see, Yuval's going to have a very different perspective on it. He's not thinking other people can extend it in the sense that DEA and other folks are going to, you know, rebuild the WCF stack on their end, right? Make no mistake about it. WCF is a proprietary implementation of open standards. Okay. okay? So in, in, from Yuval's perspective, when he says people can extend it, he's saying you, me, Richard, other .NET developers can extend it by, for example, adding new channels. New providers, adding, you know, et cetera. New bindings, et cetera, et cetera, right. 
but WCF, the, the, the product, the pipeline, if you will, the framework, that is copyright Microsoft Corporation. Got it. Uh, and, and they do not want to see that, you know, being blindly copied. Now, That's a subtle but very important difference. Right. Certainly, if you want to take the concepts of WCF, this basically what is a fat messaging pipeline. Right. By all means, Microsoft can't stop you from from conceptually copying that idea. And in the Java space, uh, there are several uh, messaging pipelines that are seeking to do some of those same kinds of things, really from an XML services perspective. They're right. not trying to incorporate RMI and EJB and all that other stuff like WCF did. And since it's um, all XML, we are still come we still come back to that hurdle that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Right. Right. Which nobody really seems w- to have a good answer for. Well, because, you know, again, it's, you know, what is the good answer for object relational impedance mismatch? Answer, there really is no one-size-fits-all good answer. Well, if there was There's an answer, size- we'd be using it. We've been fighting right. with this problem because there isn't a good answer. Right, right. And, and you know, this gets us back to, you know, the Vietnam of computer science, right? Yes, I want to plug your blog, man. That's one of the best blog posts I've ever seen. (laughs) It is the war and peace of blog posts. It goes on and on and on. And it's really, I really didn't find a lot of wasted words. And I understand why you did this. I mean, you wrote a really good summation of the entire Vietnam War. I think my gut says, for no other reason to say, look, I understand the war. Now, here's why it's in context. Right, right. And and, and partly because if you read that summarization, you know, buried somewhat subtly perhaps, but but certainly there is the realization that Kennedy and Johnson both knew what they were getting into, right? There's this widespread belief that the Vietnam War sort of surprised them, right? As far back as Eisenhower's administration, we knew that Vietnam was a quagmire. We knew that, that this was going to be a, a problem extracting ourselves. We knew that, you know, the, the Vietnamese government was corrupt and not in favor. Of, I mean, we knew all these points that, that ultimately tripped us up. And, in, in, you know, for every single one of them, it was offset with, well, we can solve those problems, right? We can find a way to solve those problems. This is a doable thing. We can, we can close the last mile on this. Yeah, we'll find and, a way. Don't worry. When we get there, there'll be an answer. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's really the same attitude I see. I mean, I have talked with numerous OR advocates who have said repeatedly those same kinds of things. We'll fix it when we get there. Or that will never be an issue for our application. We will never try to do inheritance in the database. Right. right. We just won't do that. And sure enough, you know, I even said it. I mean, well, and you I, get I, into I, the and the test cases work, the demos work, all these right. trials work. Right. It's not until further down the path that right. you get into trouble. Right. And what it basically boils down to, you know, is that, and, and and this is true of any impedance mismatch, right? When you've got two things that don't fit well together, you can certainly slave one to look in terms of the other. Nothing stops me, for example, if I want to take an object-first view of the world, nothing stops me from storing all of my objects into tables in the database that consist of two columns, an auto-incrementing primary key integer field and a blob column. And a blob. 
right? <laughs> Nothing stops me from doing that. The stuff that makes DBAs cry out in the <laughs> night. Well, yeah. And if you look at the ORMs, if you let the ORMs generate their own schemas, they do stuff like that, right? They yeah. really do. Hibernate, if you try to do a, a concrete table class mapping, as they call it, to support inheritance, you end up with one table that contains all of your inheritance hierarchy with all of the columns being nullable because those columns represent fields. And of course, not every subclass has every field in it across <laughs> the entire hierarchy. Uh, this reminds and, me of a conversation I had with a CTO where he said, I don't understand why I ever need more than one table. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you go meta enough, certainly you can make this work in a seamless fashion. But hey, man, performance is going to suffer. Yeah. And the same thing is true, Carl, like you pointed out, right? There's certainly ways to slap angle brackets around anything. Right. But what you end up with is angle brackets around something. Right. right? And another <laughs> layer that has to be translated. And, you know, then when the performance is bad, it's like, now we got to, you know, you got another layer. that You're yeah. inherently going to be slower than some, some other technology that's going right to the metal. Well, and also well, more obtuse, too. Yes. And, and, and the tools you know, can't work with it now. I mean, try to do crystal reports over that binary blob field. Try yeah, to do luck, right? crystal reports, period. I'm... <laughs> well, now that's a different bias altogether. Name, right. Value judgments about the tool, notwithstanding. Notwithstanding. Uh, there's some great Java reporting tools I can show you, Carl. Uh, mm -hmm. If you'd like, I'll, I'll, I'll send you links afterwards, Jasper reports and so forth. I'll settle for um, screenshots know. in your word, Ted. There you go. There you go. No, no, no. I figured if you hate Crystal Reports so much, you'd be interested in switching Oh, away. I don't. I just, you know, I get a lot of yeah, mileage out yeah, of that yeah. joke. There we go. There we go. I, I hate You know, to reports, tell you the truth, but... I haven't seen Crystal Reports since, oh, I don't know, last year sometime. So I really don't, there you, go. you know, but I don't know they, what the They must have all the, the problems fixed by now, right? Well, um, I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> Besides <laughs> which, it's always fun to bash, you know, the guys at the top of the heat. And say what you will about them, you know, so far as I know, they're at the top of the heap. They're right. still number yeah. one. Yeah. You know, be that as it may, right, it, try to do a, try to build a crystal reports report around a blob column or around a hibernate database or around a hibernate.net database. I'm sorry, an in-hibernate database. Um, it's awkward. It's difficult because you've basically slaved the relational model to the object model and vice versa. And the same thing is true here in the XML space, right? I can certainly create, um, I can certainly sort of replicate, you know, .NET object serialization in XML. That's what SOAP encoding does. But it doesn't, it's not XML anymore. It doesn't follow the laws of the info set. You can't XSLT it. You can't XPath, XQuery, et cetera. That's why Microsoft's XML support in SQL Server 2000 was really such a travesty, right? Yeah. That was angle brackets around a result set yeah, or a record set. It really didn't make sense. Right. What they did in SQL Server 2005 makes a hell of a lot more sense. Ted, you know, we could go on for hours. I know we I could, could sit here. We, we could, could have a five-hour .NET Rocks, and it, it would be enthralling. I think we do that sometime. I think yeah, we you, do that. We, we may. have a .NET Rocks marathon. A right? DNR have, day, right? Well, <laughs> I, I think what you could do, right, you get, you get some, some very meek and unopinionated folks like, you know, Yuval and Clement Vasters <laughs> and Harry Pearson. Right, you, you, sure sort of, you know, yeah. well, you, you let them talk, right? It's kind of like ESPN around the horn, right? You let them talk. Be you guys keep points, and at the end of each half hour, you vote one guy off the panel. Uh, <laughs> I really think this could work, Carl. You, you need to try this. It would there be a .NET Rocks bitch slap smackdown. That's what it would be. <laughs> 
I think it would be fun. I think it would be a lot of fun. I, I, I volunteer. Okay, on that note, and Bellware's in, in it, on it, too. Definitely. I know oh, God, of course. Of All course. right, well, on that note, Ted, uh, we got to wrap it up. I'd just like to say thanks again for coming and talking on the show. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. As I said, always you're always thinking, of, always thinking of great stuff. And yeah. we'll see you next week on .net. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy, let me